0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Folks who have seen the movie Hidden Figures or read Margot Lee Shetterly's book by the same title will probably recognize the name Mary Jackson. She was the first black woman to become an engineer at NASA, and she's been on my list for an episode for a while. We have a collection about women in STEM fields, but we haven't talked specifically about a woman engineer. And she really hasn't gotten as much recognition as some of the other women who are featured in Hidden Figures, such as Katherine Johnson, who calculated the trajectory for the United States' first human spaceflight and celebrated her 100th birthday in August of 2018. But I didn't realize until I got into this episode just how much Mary Jackson also worked to clear the way for other underrepresented people at NASA. I mean, she changed the the whole direction of her career to do this. And in particular, she did a lot to try to make more room for black women in the ranks of NASA engineers. That made me even more excited to talk about her today.
0: Yeah, she's pretty great. Uh, And Mary Jackson started working as a computer at the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, or the NACA, years before it was absorbed into NASA. So before we get to her specifically, we have to back up and talk a little bit about human computers. If it sounds weird for you to say someone worked as a computer, that is what they were called. Human computers, and how Langley Memorial Aeronautical Laboratory, now known as Langley Research Center, came to have a segregated pool of human computers in the 1940s.
1: There were surely people doing this kind of work in other parts of the world as well, but our focus today is really on Europe and North America. In English, the word computer, to mean a person who makes calculations or computation, goes all the way back to the early 17th century. Many of these early computers were men. They were apprentices and assistants who were doing this work as part of their education and training to become, say, an astronomer or an engineer. But women have played a really important part too, especially the wives and sisters and daughters of astronomers and physicists and other scientists, some of whom were scientists in their own right. These women did calculations to support the research of their male family members, often without ever getting the credit for it.
0: One example is mathematician and astronomer Nicole Rennes-Lepote, whose husband Jean-André was France's royal clockmaker. She worked with astronomer Joseph Lalande and mathematician Alexis Clairaut to calculate the return of Halley's Comet in 1758. Lalande later said, quote, For six months we made calculations from dawn to dusk, sometimes even during the meals. The help given by Madame Lepote was such that without her I would not have been able to complete such a colossal enterprise. But when Clairot published their findings, which were far more accurate than previous predictions had been, he did not acknowledge Lepote's work at all.
1: The Harvard College Observatory started hiring women as assistants toward the end of the 19th century. They cared for glass plates that were used to record images of the night sky, and they analyzed and recorded the images from those plates, classifying the stars and compiling the data. Observatory director Edward Charles Pickering, in particular, started hiring a whole group of women computers in 1881. They were nicknamed Pickering's harem, which was not a particularly nice nickname, and nods to sort of a perception that one of the reasons that some of these departments were all women was because the men in charge wanted to be surrounded by young women. We don't talk about that as much, and other reasons why there were women staffs of computers, but that was a thing that there was at least the perception was going on. One of the computers at the Harvard College Observatory was Annie Jump Cannon, who developed the method for classifying stars that is still used today.
0: During World War II, hundreds of women worked as computers at the U.S. Army's Ballistic Research Laboratory, doing the math for the firing tables for rockets and artillery. This included civilian women with degrees in math or science, as well as women from the
1: Women's Army Corps. Women worked as computers at the Manhattan Project, at Los Alamos National Laboratory, as well. Some were women with math or physics degrees who had been recruited for that work, and others were the wives of other Los Alamos employees. Thanks to
0: hidden figures, today the idea of a whole department of human computers is heavily associated with Langley and the space race. But within the NACA, computing departments weren't unique to Langley. Other NACA facilities had them as well. They also significantly predate the space program. Langley created its first computing pool in 1935, hiring five women as computers. These women did their calculations by hand with the help of slide rules, mathematical tables, and mechanical calculators.
1: Before the computing pool was established, Langley's engineers and scientists had been performing all of their calculations themselves— And the idea was that moving the calculating work over to a dedicated department could free up those men to focus on the science and the engineering while also making the process of computing faster and more accurate. That's also why all of those wartime departments were women because the men were needed to go to combat roles.
0: At first, many of the men who had previously done their own calculations resisted this idea and doubted whether women could do the necessary math. But the creation of the computing group had exactly the outcome the organization had been looking for. It was faster and more accurate. Plus, since women were being hired for the positions, they could be paid much less than the engineers and scientists whose work they were absorbing.
1: Of course, we are not endorsing that fact, but the administrators (laughs) liked it. There's a lot to unpack. It's unfortunate, but that was
0: part of the logic train.
1: Yeah, computing was also considered a sub-professional position, while engineering was a professional one. So the top of the ranks for a computer was mathematician, and that was equivalent to an entry-level position for a male engineer. So in other words, the top of the computing ranks lined up with the bottom of the engineering ranks.
0: And that brings us to how this job occupied a complicated spot in the grand scheme of things. Often, women computers were paid significantly more than they might have been in other work that was open to them. Think of things like teaching school. But at the same time, many of the women who were hired to be computers were overqualified for the job. And as we just talked about, they were handling work that had previously been done by men who were higher up in the org chart. Because the computers were women and their jobs were seen as subordinate to those of male engineers, they also faced sexism in a way that they might not have in other industries.
1: These disparities became even more pronounced when Langley started recruiting Black women to work as computers. In July of 1941, Franklin D. Roosevelt signed Executive Order 8802, which said, in part, "...there shall be no discrimination in the employment of workers in defense industries and in government because of race, creed, color, or national origin." This executive order followed extensive advocacy by A. Philip Randolph and other Black labor and civil rights leaders, and it also established the Fair Employment Practices Committee to make sure that order was enforced.
0: This executive order came as the United States was preparing for war. The previous May, the president had called for the U.S. to build 50,000 aircraft. This was a dramatic increase in aircraft production, up from fewer than 100 airplanes a month.
1: Langley was where aircraft manufacturers were having their high-performance aircraft tested and improved. Langley engineers would put aircraft through test flights and wind tunnels and evaluate their performance and suggest improvements and refinements on the design. The goal was to make aircraft safer, faster, and more effective. So when the president made this call for more aircraft, that gave Langley a lot more work to do. And the NACA had to hire a lot more people across the facility to do it.
0: The expansion was so huge and dramatic that it led to a housing crisis in the area around Langley, addressed in part by building a dormitory to house some of the women. A 372-unit dorm opened in the summer of 1943 with a house mother who locked everything up at 11 p.m.
1: At first, a lot of these new hires were white candidates, but before long, there just weren't enough white candidates to fill all the jobs, many of which were intended to be temporary wartime positions and not long-term careers. So after Executive Order 8802, the administration at the NACA started actively recruiting Black candidates to fill these jobs. Langley had Black employees before this point, but mostly doing things like janitorial work and groundskeeping and food service. This was the first time that Langley had recruited Black employees for professional and subprofessional roles.
0: Although the executive order barred discrimination in hiring... Virginia, where Langley is located, was still racially segregated by law. So this newly hired group of Black computers who started work in 1943 were placed in a segregated section known as the West Computing Group, or just the West Group, in which Black women reported to white supervisors. This also meant adding segregated restrooms and a segregated area of the lunchroom. Segregation was so strictly maintained that many of the white computers and lab employees didn't realize that the West Group even existed.
1: There was one computer named Miriam Mann who made it a point of repeatedly removing the colored computer sign that was used to mark the blacks-only part of the cafeteria She would just basically take it and put it in her purse and leave. And a few days later, it would show back up on the table again. And all the computers were like, we know. We know this is where you want us to sit. We know this is our designated area. You don't have to keep pointing it out to us. And her husband was like, Miriam, they're going to fire you. (laughs) (laughs) Miriam was kind of like, they're going to have to. right?" She kept doing it until they finally stopped putting the sign there. I'm like, that would be a firing well-earned, in my opinion.
0: We mentioned a few minutes ago how a woman might be better paid as a computer than she had been while working at another job while still being overqualified for that computing job. This was particularly true for Black women. Many had done exceptionally well in their study of math and had advanced degrees, years of experience teaching math and science, or both. Many, but certainly not all, of the white computers did not. They might have a math degree, but little to no experience beyond college.
1: Additionally, teaching was really one of the most prestigious jobs that was available to Black women in the 1940s. Within their communities, Black teachers were really regarded with a lot of respect and admiration, and the increase in pay between working as a teacher and working as a computer could be even more dramatic for Black computers than it was for white ones. Black teachers overwhelmingly taught in segregated schools for Black children, and they tended to have poorer facilities and much lower pay than the schools for white children.
0: But once they got to Langley, these women were just a computer. They were often looked down on by the engineers whose calculations they were carrying out. Although the women hired as computers typically enjoyed and excelled at math, other people perceived that work as tedious drudgery it could almost feel like a simultaneous step up and a step down. And for many of the women, the fact that they were doing critical wartime work at a facility as prestigious as Langley, but still being segregated by their race, was even more galling.
1: It was a little bit later, but still into this same world that Mary Jackson stepped when she got hired to work at Langley, and we will get to her after a sponsor break. Jackson was born Mary Winston on April 9th, 1921 in Hampton, Virginia, not far away from Langley. She was from a large family, and her parents, Ella and Frank Winston, were extremely focused on making sure all of their children got a good education and were really good citizens and role models. Mary
0: attended high school at George P. Phoenix Training School, which was on the campus of Hampton Institute, which is now Hampton University. Hampton Institute has actually come up on the show before. Most recently, it is where Susan LaFleche-Picotte continued her studies before going to medical school and becoming the first Native American woman in the U.S. to earn an
1: M.D. Hampton Institute was founded in 1868 to teach trade and industrial skills to freed people as well as to train them to become teachers. By the 1920s, it had become a college with numerous courses of study— The city of Hampton didn't provide education for Black children beyond elementary school, so the Hampton Institute had established Phoenix Training School for that purpose.
0: Mary graduated from Phoenix with highest honors and went on to college at the Hampton Institute. She expected that she would become a teacher, but she pushed herself to finish a double major in mathematics and physical science, even though that was a far more strenuous course of study than she would need to teach. She graduated in 1942 and was soon hired as a teacher at a segregated school for Black students in Maryland.
1: About a year later, Mary moved back home. Her father had become ill, and she came back to help look after him. But she found that she couldn't get a teaching job back in Hampton. Two of her sisters were already teaching in Hampton, and there were nepotism rules that kept her from being able to join them. So she had to find a job somewhere else. She started
0: out as the secretary at the King Street USO, doing everything from keeping the books to acting as a hostess. The King Street USO was one of the many USO centers established to serve Black members of the military. The USO had a policy of serving the entire military regardless of race, but a lot of places had segregated USO centers for reasons ranging from Black service members requesting them to Jim Crow laws requiring them.
1: Mary worked at the King Street USO until the end of World War II, and it was there that she met her husband, Levi Jackson, who was a serviceman from Alabama. They got married in 1944, and in 1946, they had their first child together, a son who was also named Levi.
0: Throughout all this, Jackson was active with the Bethel AME Church, where she and her family had long been members. She also started serving as a leader for the church's Girl Scout troop, which she would do for about 30 years. She did not yet have a daughter. Her daughter, Carolyn, was born several years later, but she loved the Girl Scouts. She was a teacher, a mentor, and a big sister for the girls in the troop, many of whom were from working class and poor families with parents who did agricultural or domestic work.
1: While she was working as the Girl Scout leader, Jackson started doing something that would also be a hallmark of her time at NASA and before that the NACA. She really wanted the girls that she worked with to see what was possible beyond what was familiar to or expected of them. And she wanted to open as many doors for them as she could. So she arranged all kinds of field trips and projects aligned with all the various merit badges to really try to broaden their experience of the world and encourage them to set really ambitious goals for themselves. Later on, Jackson would also play a key role in integrating the Black and White Girl Scout councils in the area into one integrated council in her part of Virginia.
0: Jackson returned to work when Levi Jr. turned four. She applied for a clerical position with the Army and a computing position at Langley. The offer from the Army came first, and she worked there for a few months before being offered the computer job at Langley, where the Army agreed her skills would be of better use. She started her job as one of the West Area Computers on April 5th, 1951, at the age of 26.
1: That was just a few months after Dorothy Vaughn became the head of the West Area Computers, having started out as one of the West Area's mathematicians. This made Vaughn the first Black supervisor at Langley.
0: This was almost three years after President Harry Truman had signed Executive Orders 9980 and 9981. That happened on July 26, 1948 and ordered the desegregation of the federal workforce and the U.S. Armed Forces. But segregation was still required by law in Virginia. That had not changed. So when Jackson started work at Langley, the West Area computers were still, in the words of Administrative Officer Kemble Johnson, quote, composed entirely of Negro women. The restroom and cafeteria facilities were also still segregated.
1: It had, however, become a lot more common for the West Area Computers to be assigned out to other departments at Langley for periods of days to months to work on specific projects. This became more and more common as the White East Area Computers shrank in number as their members were promoted or permanently transferred into other departments.
0: In 1953, after two years in the West Computing Group, Mary Jackson was assigned to a project on Langley's east side, along with several white computers. Jackson didn't know the layout of the buildings on the east side at all, and when she asked her coworkers from that side of the campus for directions to the restroom, they pointedly told her that they did not know where her restroom was.
1: Jackson was frustrated and angry, not just about the insult of her bathroom and the dismissive way that her colleagues had talked to her, but also about being a second-class citizen at Langley because of her race, even though she was a computer and she had more experience than some of her colleagues did. Later that day, she ran into Kashmiris Zarnacki, who worked at Langley's supersonic pressure tunnel. He asked how she was doing, and she answered him, honestly. From a number of angles, it was socially unacceptable for a Black person
0: to unload their feelings on a white person, especially when it came to racism and discrimination. And it's not entirely clear whether Jackson had just gotten so fed up that she lost her temper or whether she had perceived Czarnecki, who had immigrated from Poland, as someone it was safe to be candid with. But either way, Czarnecki asked her why she didn't come work for him— and she agreed to. And this was before he learned that she had majored in both math and science.
1: We don't want to apply that these racial disparities in who it's okay to like vent feelings to. We like we don't want to imply that those disparities are gone, but that was what was happening at the time. So uh, Jackson really made a name for herself almost immediately in this in this new department when she completed some calculations for John Becker who was the chief of the compressibility division and was multiple rungs up the ladder above Czarnecki. Jackson's final numbers didn't look quite right, and Becker insisted that they were wrong, but Jackson insisted that they were right. It turned out that Jackson had done all the calculations flawlessly, but the data that Becker had given her to start with was wrong. This earned her an apology and praise not only for her skill, but also her confidence and her insight. Zarnecki soon suggested Jackson join the
0: engineer training program. The NACA had very few women engineers at all and no black women engineers. The engineer training program required after-work classes from the University of Virginia, which were held at Hampton High School, which was still whites only. So to take the needed courses to become an engineer, Jackson had to get a special dispensation from the city of Hampton to allow her to take the classes that she needed.
1: She did, and in 1958, after she finished her courses, Mary Jackson was promoted to engineer. This made her the NACA's first Black woman engineer, and possibly the first Black woman working as an aeronautical engineer anywhere in the United States.
0: 1958 was a year of big changes at Langley, and we're going to get to those after we first pause for another sponsor break.
1: In 1958, the NACA and other similar organizations were merged together into the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, or NASA. As part of that whole process, the West Area Computing Group, which at that point was the last segregated department in the organization, was finally formally disbanded. There were only nine employees of the West Computers by then, including Dorothy Vaughn, who had been running it for seven years at that point.
0: Those remaining computers were moved to various engineering groups around Langley, and Vaughn was one of the ones who started working with the IBM computers that were gradually making human computers obsolete. Women who had been working with mathematical tables and mechanical calculators began working with punch cards instead. Mathematicians were gradually replaced by data analysts. And the teams working with the IBM computers were integrated in terms of both race and gender, although over time, more and more of the data analysts were young men.
1: Mary Jackson co-authored her first paper in 1958 as well, Effects of Nose Angle and Mach Number on Transition on Cones at Supersonic Speeds. She continued to work with Zarnecki at the Supersonic Pressure Tunnel.
0: In addition to her work as an engineer, Jackson informally mentored women and minorities, especially the ones who were hoping to get promoted into engineering roles. In a way, she was replicating and building on something that had always existed at the West Computing Group. Because they were segregated from the white staff, the West Computing Group had developed a deep network of support and resources among themselves. This gave them the tools to try to mitigate some of the racial discrimination that they faced on the job, something that Black men, who were scattered across the organization, could struggle with. So as Jackson mentored people, she tried to maintain that support network, including connecting to the former West Group computers, who were now working in other parts of the organization.
1: As the space race wound down and the U.S. aeronautics industry became less focused on the idea of supersonic transport, Langley went through numerous reorgs and reductions in force. Jackson continued to work in the supersonic pressure tunnel, specializing in how air behaves in proximity to supersonic aircraft. She took classes in the programming language Fortran to be able to work with the IBM computers as well. But eventually,
0: her career hit a glass
1: ceiling. Staff at Langley were paid according to the
0: civil service pay scale, known as the GS scale, which ranks people in pay grades from 1 to 15. Jackson got up to GS 12, which was the top of the non management scale for her role. There were very few women at Langley in grade GS 13 or above, and Jackson found that no matter how hard she worked, she just could not get to that next level.
1: In 1979, Kazimierz Zarnecki retired, and by that point, Jackson had written or co-written 12 technical publications for NASA and its predecessor. But rather than continuing to struggle for another promotion that seemed like it would just never come, she decided to change directions. A position had opened up as Langley's federal women's program manager. This was a role that would let Jackson focus on what she had been doing informally, as well as through the committees that she had been on at work, And it was also a demotion down to GS-11, which she willingly accepted for the sake of helping other people.
0: In 1981, she was offered the role of equal opportunity specialist, and she went to Washington, D.C. to train for it. She spent the last years of her career at NASA focused on making sure women and minorities had equal opportunities at Langley.
1: In these roles, Jackson took a more formal approach to the mentoring that she had been doing while she was still an engineer. She realized that a lot of the people who seemed like they were being overlooked for promotions had basically the same degree and experience as their peers, but they might be missing one particular course or one specific skill. She started intentionally seeking out people who fit this pattern to re- encourage them to go take that one class they needed to close the gap. That she paid particular attention to women in the lower ranks of the organization who had the right skills and background otherwise to become an engineer.
0: She also kept this focus outside of work, working as a Girl Scout leader and doing extensive lecturing and workshops at high schools in her area. Demonstrating for students that neither engineering nor Langley was a world reserved only for white men. She said of this work, quote, sometimes they are not aware of the number of black scientists and don't even know of the career opportunities until it is too late.
1: Jackson retired from Langley in 1985. She kept up her volunteer, community, and church work after retiring, and she died on February 11, 2005, at the age of 83. She died in a retirement home in Hampton, Virginia, and was survived by her children as well as grandchildren and great-grandchildren.
0: In 2018, the Salt Lake City Board of Education unanimously voted that Jackson Elementary School in Salt Lake City, previously named for President Andrew Jackson, would be renamed Mary W. Jackson Elementary School.
1: That same year, the U.S. Senate passed the Hidden Figures Congressional Gold Medal Act, which would award the Congressional Gold Medal to Katherine Johnson, Dorothy Vaughn, Mary Jackson, and Dr. Christine Darden. Darden was the first Black person of any gender to be promoted to the Senior Executive Service at Langley. The House referred the bill to a committee in November of 2018. As of when we are recording this, which is the end of January 2019, there have not been further updates on it, perhaps unsurprisingly, given what January was like in the government. (laughs) (laughs) That is true. Uh, Oh, Mary. I love her so much. I do, too. If you want to learn more about the computers and more about, like, life at Langley during all this time, really do go read Hidden Figures. You can also, if you like, go amuse yourself by reading the one-star reviews of the book Hidden Figures by people who clearly thought they were signing up to read a novel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, whoops. Yeah, this, things like, this book introduces 10 new characters in a paragraph and then just never follows up on them again. <laughs> Those weren't characters, honey. They were people. They were people. Oh, bless their hearts. Um. <laughs> Do you have listener mail for us? I do. I have a couple pieces of listener mail. Uh, They are about um, Sushruta. So just a heads up, we're going to talk a little bit about surgery. We heard from a couple people that they did not enjoy hearing the descriptions of surgery in that episode. The first thing is a quick correction that came in from Dave. Dave pointed out that we talked about one of the reasons people might have needed a nose reconstruction was because of late stage syphilis and how, as he understood it, uh, when Sushruta was doing his writing and teaching, that would not have been an issue in India. It is true that the most mainstream idea about how syphilis spread to Europe and then beyond is that it came back from the Americas with Christopher Columbus's expeditions. After there was, a you know, transit between Europe and North America, that has been the very long-standing um, assumption We've, I think we've had a couple things on unearth that suggest it might not have worked quite that way, but yes, I conflated two different pieces of material to get something that did not make a lot of sense. Um, by the time the British were writing down things about this whole nose reconstruction that they were witnessing, at that point, there would have been people that might have tried to have their nose reconstructed uh, because of having late-stage syphilis, but... Um, that would not likely have been the case based on when Sushruta was writing. We also have something from Marcelo. I hope I am pronouncing her name correctly. This email says, Dear esteemed SYM historians, I am a longtime fan, first-time caller who happens to be a facial plastic surgeon in Brazil specialized in nasal reconstruction. I loved your most recent episode on Shashruta and Ayurveda, which most of us read at some point during our residency training, as I usually love all your episodes. Here are a few answers to your questions. We still use the so-called Indian forehead flap as what can be easily called the workhorse of our nasal reconstructions, except it's a bit modified from its original central position into what's more scientifically termed a paramedian forehead flap. Its most important advantage over the cheek advancement flap allegedly practiced by Shashruta, or even the forearm pedicled flap practiced by the Bolognese, is that its pedicle is based on an arterial blood supply, i.e. the supratrochlear artery, which ensures a markedly diminished chance of tissue necrosis of the most distal portion of the flap. Furthermore, it bears the advantage of being more versatile, allowing for much better contouring of finer structures of the nasal tip that allows for the semblance of a natural nose, mostly because of the availability of more tissue from the forehead and or scalp that can be harvested without deforming the nearby facial structures, like the eye, and because of that arterially-based guaranteed blood supply. As a rule of thumb, the longer a flap is, the less blood is supplied to its most distal regions. With an arterial blood supply embedded into the pedicled flap, there is much more range of blood supply to these distal regions. However, we do still use cheek advancement flaps for certain defects in the nose, mostly to the nasal sidewalls and some smaller defects on the nasal dorsum. The Italian flap obviously offers the advantage of less scars on the face, but because such scars can be so well managed, it offers no extra advantage over locally based pedicled flaps, so you'd be hard-pressed to find any surgeon using that technique today There are other flaps as well. None is frequently used, nor more dependable than the modified Indian forehead flap. Keep up the great work and thanks for all the historical knowledge. I hope you two have a great trip. Cheers. Thank you so much for this email. We have gotten several emails answering a number of questions from the Sushruta episode and this one is a little longer, so we might read other ones in a future episode.
0: I have to say I was very delighted at how many surgeons were like, I can help you with this.
1: (laughs) We did. We have gotten a lot of emails from surgeons. I'm glad so many surgeons are listening to and enjoying the show. I'm glad I remember uh, pretty much all of that medical terminology that I just read from the time I took anatomy and physiology, which just feels like a feat, given how much knowledge my brain just jettisons in our work on the podcast.
0: On the daily, I I lose. I always feel bad when someone asks me something about a show and I don't even remember doing the show at all. Yeah. They'll be like, oh, did you ever think about it? And I'm like, I, no. Don't I, even I, know. I, 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 did I ever think about that ever? I don't, they'll be like, yes, you did it. And I feel very bad. My apologies if you ever talk to me and I don't know what you're yeah. talking about. <laughs> uh,
1: I don't remember which topic it was, but as I was wrapping up my time hosting this day in history class, I was looking for the outline for a stuffy You Missed in History class episode that, like, that thing was that day in history. And I couldn't find it on my computer, and I couldn't figure out why. And I was like, but I wrote this. Why don't I have it? I didn't write it. You wrote it. <laughs> I got it confused with a totally different topic that I did write. Been there. Anyway, yeah. that's how our brains work, everyone.
0: After years if... and years, you can't remember all the details of every show.
1: Nope. Nope. Uh, But if you remember details of shows, if you would like to write us an email about them, we're at History Podcast, HowStuffWorks.com. And then we're all over social media at Missed in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook and our Pinterest and our Instagram and our Twitter. You can come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com. You can find the show notes for all the episodes Holly and I have ever worked on. You can find... Uh, searchable archive every episode ever and you can find information about our trip to Paris coming up in June and you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts the iHeartRadio app and anywhere else you get your podcasts For more on this and thousands of other topics visit HowStuffWorks.com